Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 10, Edie Demas, The Sphere of Cultural Responsibility, Act 4, recorded April 28, 2018, at the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out And the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Hello, Teaching Artistry listeners. I want to thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and teaching artists in your life. It's greatly appreciated. We want to grow this into a community, or we want this podcast to be supporting the community and the growing community that we are. So I thank you. We continue to see examples of division happening in the federal branches of our government. We have been watching the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings of Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh. The GOP, who is in the majority, has been trying to, quote, plow through, end quote, as Mitch McConnell puts it, this process for the midterm, before the midterm elections. From the very beginning of this process, at every turn, the GOP has been acting, what I would like to say is shady, by setting the hearing dates before all of Kavanaugh's records could be released, by redacting records and withholding specific records via executive privilege so that the 10 Democrats members of the Senate Judiciary Committee would not be able to review and properly prepare for the hearings. The more I learned about Kavanaugh, the more I distrusted the fact that he would be able to sit on the highest court in the land and be impartial to cases put before the Supreme Court. Time and time again during the hearings, Kavanaugh dodged and ducked questions about his views around women's rights, presidents being a subpoenaed, and more. So I recommend actually listening to the New York Times, the daily podcast for specific information and journalism around the progression of these hearings, his views and his time in the government. So hopefully you've already listened to act three of this episode series and Edie ends by saying, look to the artists and the arts educators. All year long, I have been 
working in the studio with a collab, my collaborator, to develop a piece that um, is informed by the Me Too movement. And as we've been working and discussing, we're clear that the Me Too movement isn't new. It's simply that we are in a time where women and those of us who have been abused, and that could be many different people, will not be silenced or feel shame or take blame. That speaking up is empowering. And we are refusing to let men who abuse their powers and assault women as the accepted norm. There are consequences for their actions. How do we know this? It's It's been happening for the last year, year and a half, right? And in terms of the Kavanaugh hearings, Dr. Blasey Ford is someone who exemplifies the idea of speaking out at, at speaking out with dignity. And before a, a Senate Judiciary hearing where half of that circle were old white men, where this w- woman who is appears to be white is speaking out about a white man who assaulted her when they were in high school and how that laughter has left an indelible mark on her psyche. To have to relive that trauma in front of the world after receiving death threats and having to protect her family with security is the epitome of bravery, courage. And she, to me, is a symbol for other women, including myself, who feel as though they can speak up, speak out about their own experiences with assault or abuse at the hands of men. This week has been crazy making, but I feel like my friend Lauren Jost has put this into perspective for me. So I'm going to quote something that she wrote on Twitter. This week has been a crisis of realizing that a class of humans you belong to has, quote, less value in the eyes of your elected government, that they will fight tooth and nail to make sure we know it, that we give up on trying to change that and that we accept our place. But we won't. We will remake the government in our image. November is coming. End quote. This is a lot to process, <laughs> but, um, and my giggle is not like a hap- happy giggle. It's more just like incredulous. I'm just incredulous at the whole situation, how this government has decided that these, this way of operating is okay that this president thinks that this is still a good candidate. And a lot has happened in just a short amount of time where while he uh, has been confirmed by this committee, 11 to 10, to move forward to having a full vote um, by the whole Senate, uh, where they need 51, at least 51, 
votes um, that there will be an FBI investigation into these allegations and um, <laughs> with some caveats of limited in scope, et cetera. But the other piece to this story, I think, is the women who's who confronted Jeff Flake. So this is a senator who has decided who's a Republican, uh, who has decided to um, not rerun again. He's from Arizona, I believe. And um, I guess in a break, these women came and had a conversation with, with him while he was trying to take the elevator up. Uh, and he seemed to, you know, was he listening? I'm not sure. But in the video, which you can find on um, all the social medias, uh, he's pressing the closed door but they are telling him telling him about their own experience about um the fact that by confirming this candidate there he is saying and his colleagues are saying that we are second class citizens and that we don't mean anything this is a job interview this is not a criminal case this is a job interview and between that moment with jeff flake in the elevator um, trying to shut the doors on these women um, and yet not being able to between uh, the him and uh, the GOP majority thwarting and not calling for the FBI investigation initially and um, Lindsey Graham and his um, undignified I'll say uh, call to sort of rue the day to Democrats and, ha and and how they've been resisting this process, knowing that it hasn't been um, run on the up and up, to Kavanaugh himself in his responses to um, the hearing w where Dr. Blasey Ford spoke. I don't believe he was in the room, but he spoke last on Thursday. And it was a display that anybody going for a job in it this is your interview and you are yelling at people you're being disrespectful to senators asking you questions no no I disagree and not answering questions by the way so I know that I'm pretty biased I'm clear on that I was I was clear on that from the beginning that this wasn't the person I thought should be on this uh, judicial branch, but he's still here and this is going to go to a vote. So, what can you do? Um, I say call your senator, let them know how important it is for them to vote no, if that's what you believe. And if you believe that and you live in a red state, call your senator. Because they are the ones who actually hold the key to stopping this judge from joining the Supreme Supreme Court and having a truly negative effect on this country for the next 30 to 40 years. This is a lifetime appointment. And the way that this gentleman attacked the Democrats because of this process... Um, Rather than saying, I'm innocent, let's have an FBI investigation. Rather than saying any of that, just attacked.
this is not somebody who I think can be impartial. Um, so I'm going to move on, but I just needed to say all of that. And I'm going back to the words that Edie's words that have been echoing in my head about I'm looking to the artists, I'm looking to the arts educators, and I'm challenging myself to use my art and my collaborative methods to apply them to everything that I do in this world and how I use my voice, how I create art, how I interact with others. Like I said, we're living in a time, y'all. And we have a responsibility inside of it. I love this conversation that we had with Edie. Um, I'm almost a little sad that this is the last <laughs> uh, installment of this series. But I think that you will enjoy Edie Demas, The Sphere of Cultural Responsibility, Episode 10, Act 4. How do I take all that stuff? How do any of us take all that stuff and apply it to the moment we're in? And what is the power of that? You know, we talked about social justice and humanity and play. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe it's sort of become easy in this moment to say, and, and I believe it, you know, our artists have a many of these answers. Look to the artists. Mm-hmm. I actually would go further. I would say look to the arts educators look to the teaching artists, look to the people who have already um, facilitated um, and live and breathe by those principles. Um, And those are the superpowers we want to harness and bring out. And I think, I I think, I think things, it's kind of, I think things are shifting. I think other, people are starting to notice that. I think it's not um, a mere coincidence that Russell Granite is the acting president of Lincoln Center right now. This is the moment Mm -hmm. where all of that work can really impact, and that value set has the possibility of impacting um, a, a major, if not the major, cultural institution of, of you know not just this country um, and not at both internally and externally and and that is I think not uh, as I said not coincidental and I you know we see examples of that all over the place um, I see it over and over and over again in the filmmakers that um, are coming through the Jacob Burns either uh, with finished work that they're screening, that they have a clear um, social impact um, aspirations around. And you know, now there is a job in the film world, I don't know how now it is, but in recent years, of an impact producer whose job it is to create impact. And when that stuff really works, it's borrowing from the fundamental Mm -hmm. education and engagement strategies Mm -hmm. that you and I were trained in Mm -hmm. back in the day at NYU. Mm and, and, you know, it's just a different name and a different art form, but it's the same stuff. And the museum world for a long time now has been leading the way 
around what is authentic engagement look like in museums? What is, you know, a visitor-led museum? Um, how do we shake up those structures? And, you know, again, uh, over and over and over again, I say <laughs> teaching artists and arts educators have been doing this. You know, they may have been doing it as a sidebar, you know, on the hours when, no, you know, nobody else wanted to open the museum or whatever the inst arts institution or cultural institution is, but they've been doing it, or they've been doing it in, in the community. They've been doing it in schools that nobody wanted to visit. They've been doing it in prisons. They've been doing it in hospitals. They've been doing it in senior citizen communities. They've been doing it in rec departments and libraries mm -hmm. and the places that uh, are not so shiny. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that is work that Russell now brings to this new and powerful lens um, that I try to bring here to the Burns. Um, it's evident in one of the things I'm most excited about that's evolving at the Burns now is um, we, we've created an umbrella called Creative Culture, which houses um, uh, artist fellowships and residencies and, and some other related work. And so, you know, we're bringing on filmmaker fellows twice a year. And um, here I'll give you, I brought you this, the headlines about it, but, Ooh. you know, they don't look like who we see mm. at, um, in the um, assumed filmmaker community. Mm -hmm. And we are creating this program so that they will be disruptors. And one of the amazing things about them and the interesting thing in light of our conversation is the guy here at the Burns who directs this program and, and really conceived of it, it came out of the strategic plan and he made it happen, mm -hmm. is a guy named Sean Weiner who came from our education department. He was a faculty member. Mm. He's a teacher and a filmmaker, and he also has um, some improv comedy experience with Upright Citizens Brigade, so he's very much a yes-and person. Yes, he is. <laughs> and again, like we talked about the New Vic TA Ensemble, what Sean and I talked about, and he put into action and, 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 and made the vision his own, is how do we make this a collaborative community? Because mm. although um, on the surface, a the making of a film is collaborative because so many people um, are required to make it, it isn't necessarily an authentically collaborative work structure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and neither is all theater. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that. We've all if you you know you we've different directing styles, all of that, it can be just as top down as the kind of um, empty vessel theory of education, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so Sean has very much worked to get out of that mode so that these, uh, one of the things they do is that all these filmmakers um, give each other, uh, they have skill swaps. So if one is a really great storyboarder or one is, um, has really great training in documentary and ethical sort of interview techniques or whatever it is, um, there's a period of time when they're together where each week somebody else offers a skill to the rest of the group. And all, and many, many other ways. They crew for each other. They, he's really working mm -hmm. hard to create a collaborative community. And I 
And, and part of that was also the idea that uh, to be in this program, you have to be out of um, film school or an equivalent. So this is not instead of film school or um, um, or a, a like a a summer program when you're in college or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's right. So it's it's sort of a first step professional program, and. Um, and you don't ha that doesn't imply age that just, it's yeah. stage right mm. and uh, so but now of course I lost the, my train of thought so so the idea is that these folks will crew for each other that it's filling a gap um, in terms of your professional development because if you were in film school you were part of a community mm. you you know you crewed on each other's films and all of that you had the community of your school and then you get out and it's like you you know you're looking over your shoulder there's nobody around me anymore mm -hmm. i'm on my own and in that way i think Sean was thinking that film as a profession is not so collaborative and often you're pitted against each other and so this was to the the goal was to create a community and i i believe that many of these folks will continue to work together that's great um so that's been very gratifying and, and exciting and all those things to see uh, come come together and mm -hmm. and and now really thrive and um, one of the things Sean and I spoke about early on that we hoped might happen is that just by being here in an organization that put education um, up there with film from the very beginning was that some of them would sort of get the teaching bug, and they have. Mm. And so we've seen many of these folks also teaching in uh, various age groups uh, in our education programs. And that's been super cool because I had in the back of my head the TA ensemble thinking, you know, what, what, what could ensemble or that idea mean here, mm. translate it to this program? And so it's as much about their professional development and their having people not just to, to uh, talk to about how to get their film made that, or you know, how to solve a problem on a particular short film, mm -hmm. but also things like RTAs have shared. How do you get, how, what health insurance do you use? Um, you know, just the practical life stuff. Yeah. And that's that I know was a tremendous outgrowth and of the TA ensemble at the New Vic. And I thought it was very important to create a, com a film community. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly up here in the Hudson Valley, that wasn't just about, I got to get to New York or LA as fast as I can. So, um, so here there's something special happening, I think, where they can also rely on each other for all kinds of life advice and strategy advice and networking and all that stuff. And I fully believe that at some point, like the TA ensemble, they'll be making projects together mm -hmm. and that that will grow and thrive in very much the same way. So that's always been in my mind. And, and, and teaching is part of that portfolio of how you make it mm -hmm. as a creative. Um, or could be. It's not for everybody. No. And, um, and that's what's starting to happen. And we're seeing some really nice possibilities there. Yeah, I'm glad that you, you mentioned the TA ensemble because as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh, yes. And I was um, here, here writing, jotting things down. Uh, I'll talk about that. But the 
the, what you said something about pitting, you know, once you graduate, you feel like where, where are my people, where are my contemporaries? And now I'm out here fending for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel that way when they graduate, um, especially in the arts, if they're graduating in any sort of art form. But, um, it reminded me of when we, the first time we started to try and do curriculum development, it was very anxiety ridden, that's right, that's which is right. where we, I think where we got to the structure of, of that's right. the artistic process uh, and defining it for uh, an education or arts education um, process. But the, the, the thing that was really confusing to me and, and hard for me was watching what we had built up at that point, uh, this community of artists, and then all this anxiety because they had created something that was educational and worried that we were going to choose somebody else's idea over another or, you know, and so trying to, you know, take right, that sort of ar- right. hierarchical and that pitting and really p- sort of uh, make it more uh, on, a, on a, a same, uh, I'm, I'm trying to say a fancy word of uh this making things more lateral yes thank you (laughs) um and and uh, more collaborative so that you know yes there's a whole bunch of ideas on the table and now as a group we're going to decide what's the best one to move forward with because it's right for what the work needs is calling for right so I love this idea of creative culture and and again as you were talking I was listening even (laughs) though I was writing down I was thinking about um, when you said, I wish that there was a term for what I, some of the things that I do as a, as a manager. And I was thinking, okay, well, I, I started working with a creative consultant. So that's one I'm going to throw out there. <laughs> and then when you were talking about, um, this creative culture, you said something about disruptors mm-hmm. and wanting to try and figure out if any of these people were interested in being a disruptor by actually teaching, mm-hmm. um, in addition to what they're creating as filmmakers. Um, and then, you talked about impact producers, right? Uh, I love that term. No, it's awesome. Google it. Oh yeah. I think it has. <laughs> I, I think it needs to come into the performing arts world. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm, a, I'm interested. And if in I that. was going to have an, another life, I would. I would love to figure out how mm-hmm. to translate that. Um, and then more, more specifically to you, I was mm-hmm. thinking, okay, well, there's this idea of influencer in, in social media that they talk about right, influencer, right. influencer, a creative collaborator is what you've already define yourself as one thing and then there's this world of like life coaching and motivational coaching and I feel like there's something in there for you okay think about that. I'm gonna take all that and think about it thank yeah. you you're welcome <laughs> um so let's go back because I was curious about how um the filmmakers or how your teaching artists do work currently um within the education programs like uh, I don't know if you're directly involved with the teaching artists staff themselves yeah, or I'm, how, how I'm does it work I'm not directly but mm-hmm. um it's interesting what 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 um came into being here at the Burns was um the the, uh, the Burns has never used the term teaching artist. Okay. So the um, they've always talked about faculty. So there are full-time faculty members who are work as curriculum developers and teachers and, and a few other things, but that's the chunk heart of it. And then we also have a, a number of adjunct faculty who operate in different ways. So some are um, specialists in a particular aspect like script writing um, and some are just moving in and out um, because that's the way they want to work. So 
excuse me, they can teach a variety of things, but they're on a, on a more teaching artist or part-time mm-hmm. kind of ba- freelance basis. Um, and where was I going with that now? What else, what else do you want to know about them? Why? Well, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, do, uh, do they work collaboratively? Do they, they do, they yeah. do. And they, um, as the, that sort of flagship program I was mentioning to you, image, sound and story continues to grow that, um, we say curriculum, but I really feel like it's more of a methodology that also has a curriculum, but we're still working on all of that. So that's image, sound, and story is uh, going to span pre-K to 12. It's a project-based approach. It's primarily designed to be delivered by classroom teachers or youth workers in an after-school setting, Mm. not by teaching artists or film faculty or specialists, uh, although it can be taught that way too. Um, And it is... um, the sort of tagline we've been using lately for it is um, we're teaching literacy for a vi- for today's visual culture and so can you and it it uh, its proposition is that um, literacy in our time is no longer reading and writing and speaking and listening it's viewing and creating or making media and that you cannot be what we objectively would describe as fully literate or fluent um, in this day and age without having a fluency in media and um, and so image sound and story it, it is is fu- uh, fundamentally addresses that mm-hmm. but in through a structure that mirrors um, more traditional approaches to English language arts and similarly can also integrate those concepts with other content or subject areas. So at its core, the fundamental building blocks of it are um, projects, are, are, are um, viewing lists of short films primarily, um, and related media making projects uh, around image, sound, and story. That's the core of the program. And then it builds from there. Uh, there are seven other literacy concepts that then are approached similarly. So after that, there's character, mood, setting. Uh, I'm missing four, uh, but it goes on from there. Mm-hmm. And um, what I really love about it is this fundamental premise that um, to unpack and truly be fluent in what we're calling right now visual literacy, mm-hmm. uh, you have to both watch media and make media. So that's the viewing and creating piece. Um, or sometimes we, ca- for hashtag purposes, we call it viewing and doing. Yeah, and um, when the the uh, amazingly another full circle moment in all of this is that when I was working on the national drama curriculum in Ireland, the fundamental premise of that around theater or drama was watching and making. That full circle. 
Full circle, yeah. <laughs> that, again, if you were going to have a school-based curriculum for drama, you couldn't just watch it, and you couldn't just make it. Mm. It had to bring both together. Yeah. And it reminds me, again, I don't know if we use the same kind of terminology, but in those early days of imagining what was to become Spark, you know, and we mm. were talking about that um, pinnacle arts experience of wa of watching, but what are the processes of doing in the classroom that that lead you to receiving that experience? And um, it's not quite the same. And in fact, here at the at the, but it's it, it's all it's this it's the same notion, the same basic concept, yeah. I think. But at the Burns, it, the sequence is is. Um, sort of reverse, so the viewing and unpacking the, the media or the visual text, that's the more formal term that we're using. Mm -hmm. So um, your analysis, comprehension, and observation around the visual text is then deepened by your experience of actually um, doing those things yourself mm -hmm. or creating. Mm -hmm. it, it, I find that very, very similar to how we work with within the new Vic structure where the, the watching, uh, live performance, um, is in, um, influenced, I guess, uh, by the, the making mm -hmm. that happens in your classroom before or after, um, by having that art, performing arts literacy, uh, the different vocabulary for what you're about to see on stage. I mean, I, there's that moment where, um, Bello, let's. I, this is what I'm remembering. Is Bello um, did a a, a slip, mm -hmm. a, a slip and trip, and the kids had learned that. And they all, when they saw him do that, they all turned to each other and were like, "We know what that is. We did right. that ourselves." So the idea of being able to, um, by making or creating or doing, um, and understanding why we do these things, and in, in the context, and then being able to see it, and so that. Which is the order for you guys? Right or now, it it's the viewing, viewing and first. then the creating. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. For us, it's but I, you know, again, yeah. that's how we teach it to teachers. They, they, they can do it however they want when yeah, it's in no, their I'm, hands. But I think that yeah. there is something about being able to watch something because I think because movies or you know the visual is in our lives pretty round uh, every clock. day, round yeah. the clock, exactly. So it, it really does it. It makes sense to me that, um, well, one, you can go back mm -hmm. right and watch it again, or it's in your mind. Um, so after the doing, you, you view first, then you do, and that deepening, that understanding the visual text, right? Mm -hmm. um, that there's more meaning making that can happen when you go back or you see a new piece of right. film. Right. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's 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 really been fun to work in, and we've been working with Denny. We've we've just finished our first year of really intensive data collection with Denny, and so we're starting. And at some point, my fantasy is that we'll get be able to get together to share what we're finding and hear about what you guys have found yeah. and find the connections. I would I think that would be really really fantastic. So just just to be clear, we're both talking about Wolf Brown, which is a research firm um, that are partners with each of our organizations on particular research That's right. projects. And so they're the firm I mentioned did our strategic mm -hmm. plan and now we've continued to work with Denny Palmer Wolf on creating um, 
research evaluation and assessment tools for our work with Image, Sound, and Story. That's so great. And Denny Pummelwolf is the principal researcher on our project around Spark and intrinsic impact of performing arts on, on young audiences. Um, and we are at, uh, wrapping up the end of a three-year, technically a four-year, but a three-year research um, data collection project, and now in the midst of analyzing that data and, and you know, really coming up with some very surprising and exciting and um, interesting uh, results. So yes, stay I heard we both, we both. Oh no, maybe it was Arts Corps, and and Denny also mm. works with Arts Corps in Seattle, mm-hmm. which has come up before because Nuvic Teaching Arts James Miles is now the executive director yeah. there. Uh, James Miles was the first interview. He was at the pilot. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so I'm hearing mm-hmm. from Denny that um, that uh, at least Arts Corps and us are both seeing middle school dips and outliers in our data. Yep. So there is a real conversation. This is a real, real conversation. And actually, we're in the midst of, we were here actually, because um, my supervisor lives in the same town. Yes. Um, who's a wonderful woman. Uh, and uh, so we came up here a couple weeks ago, actually, to start thinking about what will be our next research project, and we had a lot of conversation around middle school and what, um, what, what we can do and should be thinking about around. Maybe there's the a collaborative project around middle school potentially, and with and with uh, Seattle too, with ArtsCore too. If we're all seeing the same thing, it might be interesting to at least bump brainstorm together about it. I actually think that that's a, a, a strong idea. It would be interesting, uh, it would also be interesting to mm, maybe have a round table or, you know, being at some sort of conference looking specifically at the middle school sector. Oh, that's a great arts, idea. Um, be, because what we're finding, well, at least what I'm, I'm understanding, because I'm not, I'm, you know, I sort of stand on the peripheral of, the, of all the all the data. Because um, you bring the heart. I bring the heart. <laughs> I bring the heart. Um, but the stories, the the anecdotal, not the qualitative, but the the quant. Sorry, not the quantitative, but the qualitative information that I feel like we have collected um, in in the middle school sector doesn't necessarily match the quantitative. The quantitative. Um, and we have a hunch about that too. Mm-hmm. But I could be just, you know, programmatically too soft and mushy. I don't think too. so. <laughs> I, I mean, w- we saw very clearly two things. One was there's something on the creating side, especially in middle school, that that we're not. Um, we need to go back and look at what we could do better to mm-hmm. give teachers the skill so that the mm-hmm. the projects are more successful in mm-hmm. that realm. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing was we were just flat. We were trying to collect data around imagination in creating, and it just, it just was f- f- absent. Mm. And so I, uh, I think, one, the tool, I think that's primarily the tool is off. Um, but I also just wonder, like, what else is going on in middle school? Because we, we had third, seventh, and tenth grade data. Mm. And I just wonder what's going on in middle school. That I mean, that's also a time where you don't really want to put your imagination on the line Mm-mm. or there, anything on no, the there's line. There's so much armor. There's <laughs> yeah. so much armor. I'll just tell you this one 
um, anecdote. So we have a, um, in our spark program, we have a middle school that actually we, we extended their three year program into four years, mainly because it took us three years to see any sort of, um, movement and, um, committed ourselves to another year to push past that, to get to some sort of um, success point. And the, the principal who is under a tremendous amount of pressure as a, as a renewal school um, was able to articulate better than year one, Mm -hmm. why it was so important for us to be there. And so um, we've seen some tremendous um, growth in that, in the collaboration um, side of things with the, the, not only the principal, but the, the classroom teachers themselves in this year, we are at the, you know, we're in springtime. So it's all, many of the residencies are culminating and the seventh graders, um, saw multiple shows and we're working with two artists, two different artists, the, a new pairing that we put together. Um, and they ultimately created magic show that they then, stop they then <laughs> they performed their magic tricks for the first graders in the elementary school oh. that is co-located and the story goes i wasn't there because i was sitting in a room with the doe but i was getting lots of pictures and the story goes that as they were preparing one they had sparkly bow ties that they all that they sort of laid out in the teaching area said you know if you're interested you know you you feel free to pick one out and and put it on and they all sort of were you know slouching and whatever and sort of blah. and then one kid sort of was like oh this is cool and the rest of them all put them on okay wow. so that was one thing and then you know they're sort of giving them the pep top and pre- and prepping before they go down into the lower level of the building and um, again they were sort of you know snarky and you know middle school kids, seventh graders. And as soon as they walk into the room, they just, they, they were on and they were caring for these first graders. Not only were they doing, you know, the, the tricks themselves, but then they were, you know, saying, Oh, well, you know, how's it going and checking in with them. And, um, and I'm getting, so I'm sitting in this room meanwhile, and I'm getting, uh, like my phone is pinging going crazy. And, and going crazy. And so I'm like slyly while we're talking about pre-K and teachers and it's a great thing that we're doing. I'm looking at these amazing images, uh, come through my phone and I'm starting to cry, oh, literally cry oh, in the midst of this meeting. And there's one beautiful picture of a kid show, doing a, um, a like on his level. So a, a, you know, a tall seventh grader coming down onto a first grader's level and doing a magic trick. And the look on this little first grader's face is just pure, like surprise and delight. And, um, you can't, I can't. So, so then they decide to give gift their bow ties. This was all on the kids gift their bow ties to the first graders. I mean, can't, I can't. Yeah, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? So, we had a similar, yeah. <laughs> but not as uh, it's just just a quick anecdote that I'm dying to figure out what to do with, other than tell it as a story, and maybe that's enough. Mm. But um, we had a a, a set of um, uh, pre and post uh, image, sound, and story experience, um, student assessment worksheets, Mm. rubrics. And um, 
and we were working in one one school in the and I forget which grade level, um, maybe third grade, but I'm not sure. Uh, uh, where it's all English language learners. Mm -hmm. And the pre-assessment was they wrote in Spanish. And the post-assessment, they were feeling so good and so confident that they wanted to write in English. And so it's that is that in itself is something, you know, to I was saying we were, were preparing for how to present all this data, and I was saying we got to figure out how to sing this story from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. um, but we had to throw out their assessments from the data set because oh. it would it's not clean mm -hmm. data as you were talking about, but it's all heart, and um, you know it's a mag it's a magnificent story, mm -hmm. and so, and the amazing thing is that post assessment. Um, First of all, it's an achievement that they even wanted to write it in English. But then they did. They completed them. And one of the things that we want, we're looking for in that is their uh, applying of film language. And it was there. So, yeah. So it's very exciting. And we're, you know, we're, we're um, this for us is, is baby steps. But we hope that it'll grow into something like mm -hmm. what you guys have just completed. That's very exciting. And needed. Yes. So, so needed. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go back for two seconds. That's not true. It won't be two seconds, but I'm going to go back for a moment. Um, one, I think I said that we were going to talk more about theater for young audiences and then we moved on. Did I do, did I skip that? I don't know. Uh, what do you want to know about it? I don't know anymore. <laughs> I just want, I just wanted to make sure that I, I, I did ask questions and we talked about imaginary, right? And then, I don't know. Anyway. And then I remembered all of the principles. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's, let's have it. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can remember all the literacy concepts. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, structure and stimulus. Oh, that's right. Yes. Um, and then I had, I had combined two. That's what happened. So there's asking questions. Yes. That was one. And then there was making connections for stronger student to student or peer to peer interaction. Mm -hmm. Then performing arts literacy, um, use the form to teach the form, honoring prior knowledge. So that's, that's what happened. But there was something that you said that I was like, <laughs> structure and stimulus. Right. And, and shared yeah. journey is on Oh, there, right? shared journey. Oh, so then maybe they are together. Ah. Oh shared journey which again yes. brings us back to that lower lobby meeting sure does sure does this is three four five and six there we go finally ta-da ta-da oh i did i guess back going back to the um the theater for young audiences i was thinking about how I don't know. There was something that you said uh, about arts education and all the different arguments. Like you're, you said this before about being tired of having like the arts for arts sake argument versus arts integration and all that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think what's really exciting is the fact that there are all these different facets, including thinking about ways of making theater or making art that is for uh, a targeted audience that is a young audience mm -hmm. um, and, and all the different ways to do that. 
and that there are, um, you know, I don't know if festivals is the right word, but there are incubators for that. Right. Um, right. right so Labworks right. is one from New Vic, New Visions, New Voices, um, from Kennedy Center. There's one um, co- that comes out of NYU, which is a new play right, reading. Right. Um, th- those two, the latter, the, the last two that I just mentioned are more um, playwright and driven. script driven. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you know of any other um, either incubators or other places where um, you know, artists could be in an incubator type situation to make th- work for young audiences in, the, I guess, within the U.S. or in general. Um, I don't off the top. Um, Imaginate has a, mm-hmm. a project development component, but I I don't know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it does feel kind of like an incubator. I I can remember seeing video footage of. Um, I can't remember the play that or that came out of it, but they were working with teens around gender identity. And it was a sort of hybrid of some of the techniques that um, I first really learned in Ireland around youth theater and script devising with young, or, or project devising with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 Art and a collaborative art-making professional artist structure, and kids as sort of research partners in, or inquiry partners in, in uh, towards a production, which is sort of the trusty sidekick mm-hmm. mode, mm-hmm. Um, and it just looked really cool. Um, and you know, the thing that was different from the more old school youth theater devising models is that the kids were in the room with the artists. If I'm remembering correctly from the footage I saw, um, purely for sort of artistic inquiry purposes, you know, they were not going to then perform the piece. It wasn't Mm -hmm. sort of the ping chong model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they really were there as sort of artist researchers. Yeah. So I'm in the, I, I have a theater company, uh, which is always hard for me to say that out loud because it's just two of us, but um, a space between, and we've created one piece um, uh, that's performed twice in the last couple of uh, five or six years called The Red Dress, and it's targeted at 12 and up, and we sort of are in that world of 12 and up with a feminist uh, view uh, mm-hmm. and, and more on a you know identity, female questioning inquiry kind of place um and we are just stepping back into the studio after many years uh working together um and again sort of thinking about um what are some topic or issues that we are interested in that are um most inherent to women um and young girls uh or teenagers and um, so we're, we're engaged in conversations around the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and thinking about how it's not a new movement <laughs> right. uh, and it's not a new thing no. and what has it looked like over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where we're kind of at now. We're about to go into a rehearsal mode for the next, we've been sort of dabbling this year and now we're going into a more um, specific um, residency is not quite the right word, but like a curated lab. lab. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's very exciting. And so, you know, one of the things that's, um, 
interesting to me about what you're talking about in terms of, of trusty sidekick and, and other experiences that you've had is why, why make art for young people? Why do you think? I mean, <laughs> I yeah. know that it's important, but what, you know, what is it, um, what is it when adults are making work for young people? Like what, what are the things that we well, should I be just, considering? What are, why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, the sort of the bigger, the why, you know, there's a huge and rich and sometimes challenging tradition, literary tradition for, for mm. kids and young people. And it's always just from the v very beginning of my path into this world at, at uh, even pre-NYU. Like, I've never understood why there isn't the equivalent wealth of theatrical or performance e experiences for kids, you know? Why don't we have a treasure trove? Um, so, so that's a question I've been asking for a long time. Um, and... And then the why, the, the more specific why, I get, or particular why is, um, you know, I, I think everybody who's interested in it would probably answer that question differently and should in the same way. Um, it should be the same question that you would ask any artist, any maker in any art form. Why do you make art? So, you know, it's, you know, I think the, the sort of maybe what I'm driving at is that the question is, why do you make art? And then there's a follow-up question about, why do you make art for this audience? Mm. Um, or any audience. Um, so I think one of the things that I think is really important about it is that we're lacking a treasure chest of material and that the canon, if if we can still want to even use that idea of, a, of there being a canon, mm. I'm not sure it's relevant anymore, but put that aside, the, the well needs to be bigger, deeper, richer, wider, more inclusive, everything, mm -hmm. uh, more experimental, more, you know, there's no one way to make a piece of theater for grown-ups. There's no one way to make a piece of theater for kids. Um, so from an artist or creator maker point of view uh, the why is because it's endlessly interesting just mm. like making any art um the larger value proposition to the world is because just like at the burns we're making the argument that to be fully literate you've got to be fluent in visual storytelling um i would say the same is true of live performance. And in fact, those literacies mm. of viewing and creating um, apply equally to live performance. And the irony of all of that is that when we go back to our colleague in common you were referring to a little while ago, Lisa Post, who lives in Pleasantville, when I first landed at the Victory, New Vic, she and we were getting to know each other, and I was talking about possibilities for um, how I saw what education might be able to be there. Um, she said, I was talking about theater as text, and I was talking about the visual texts of theater, 
And at that point, I was really into a book called Theater as Sign System, which we don't have to get into, but I've been very influenced by it. And, um, and Lisa said to me, you know, you sound an awful lot like this guy in Pleasantville who's opening a movie theater, and he's talking about film as visual text and the educational possibilities that it holds. And so from that moment, which was 2001, right after 9-11, which is, is when the Burns opened and when I arrived at the New Vic, the Jacob Burns was in my consciousness. And so from time to time, with no particular motive, just a curiosity, I would look at the Burns website and see what they were doing. Um, and so I think, where is this going? <laughs> um, I think that we all need to be more literate and fluent in these languages. And for me, the, the one, I mean, of course I'm interested in, in you know, what happens in viewing and the idea of analysis, comprehension, and observation that comes out of that. And of course I'm interested in making and the, domain, the realms we're looking at under the idea of creating our imagination I think intention and uh, production. I believe in all of that, you know, and um, uh, makes my heart sing when I get to do all those things and see kids and anybody do all those things. But the one I'm the most interested in is this third circle that we've added to our Venn diagram that we're calling connecting. It's what you you were talking about in the pillars. Um, and, and the idea that by doing these things, when all this thing, all this stuff is coming together in the, at the heart of the Venn diagram, what we're really talking about is making engaged and global citizens. And so what we're infusing now into that work is coming a lot out of the youth development world and social and emotional mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. and for me that's just what art does for any human being and um and it's clear at this moment in time that we need to be teaching kids how to be empathetic mm. good listeners mm. good citizens um, have a respect for diversity be able to authentically listen to ideas that aren't theirs and respond to them in a way that is thoughtful and respectful I mean all those things it goes on and on I'll give you the bullet points but that is you know that's the why and that's why I can't remember if we spoke last summer about you know how much I value and continue to value and now want my kids to value um, the accident of birth of growing up in Washington, D.C., where I was got to be in these pinnacle cultural institutions in the Smithsonian's mm -hmm. for free. And um, to me, that it's like how people talk about the national parks epitomizing America's um, democratic vision. To me, the Smithsonian's as national free arts for all, cultural institutions also um, epitomize, are at the heart of what makes a successful democracy and the nation's commitment to democracy. And, you know, again, that's just in my DNA now because I had parents who brought me there and I lived in a city where access um, 
on a regular basis was not financially prohibitive. Mm -hmm. And um, that's powerful. And I just want to say, why only museums? Why not kids in film and mm -hmm. kids in theater and kids in music and dance and mm -hmm. circus and whatever else and whatever other hybrid art form this n these next few years present us with? Because if kids aren't used to all those experiences and they get into a, um, a you know a virtual goggle-driven world, which I I don't. I don't think I have a problem with. I think it's really exciting what's happening in those spaces. But there are new forms of storytelling coming down the pike really fast. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I'm not talking about fake news on Facebook. I'm talking about fictional and documentary style storytelling in your mm -hmm. headspace mm -hmm. or wherever else it exists. And um, it's amazing what people are doing. And and we got to be ready for it and excited by it. And we have to give kids access to it, too. They have just as much of a right to new art forms, new storytelling forms, as you or I do. And all too often, they're left out of that equation. And that is why. I don't know if that makes sense. All, all of that <laughs> makes sense. All of it does. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I you know I I went to a uh, at the face to face conference. There was a, a keynote that um, I got a little lost on, but uh, essentially he was talking about how um, uh, systemic racism and um, white supremacy um, constructs have filtered their way into this sort of liminal space or this digital space of fantasy and the idea of young people of color, but young people in general um, choosing avatars that, of a different of a race, different race yeah. of a different, you know, and, and have it, you know, in there. And then when you were talking, so, so there's that one thing that I thought that I, I can't speak very eloquently about, but the, the idea of all these new art forms coming through and the, the VR, for example, I love all of that stuff and, and documentary style. And it's, it's intense because it's literally right in your eyeballs. Yeah, you're living it. You're living it and you're feeling, you look around and you're, it's like you're there. Um, that's been really fascinating for, for me to come into. And um, some of it does feel super foreign. And if you don't have access to something that's like around the corner or in your own city or in your own borough or neighborhood, if you don't feel like that's for you, then how are we supposed to help or how am I supposed to access something that's right. coming down the pike? And there's additionally, there's all a lot of conversations and articles and op-eds about, um, and probably data, I'm sure about screen time mm -hmm. and what that, uh, what that looks like on a socioeconomic level. Um, uh, for example, there's, uh, I, I haven't read the article yet, but I've seen this headline of how principals are very worried about right. screen time. And then, um, I've, I've read other articles about how, um, parents who are more like helicopter parents who are building structures where screen time has a particular time place, in the day, yeah. uh, or time and place in the day versus it being a thing that, a tool for babysitting mm -hmm. um, and out of necessity because there are other things that are happening in the home and um, and that whole spectrum and what that actually means 
has is is an in, it's an interesting conversation to have that I, I, again I need to do a little bit more concrete. yeah and so do we we're thinking yeah. at it all the t- about yeah. it a lot but the you know the thing is that this work whether it's live performance or film mm-hmm. um, the work around engagement and literacy um, I think applies and has answers to those questions you're just raising because. If, if kids are working on being active viewers, whatever the medium is that they're viewing, um, they're going to bring that. If we can build strong muscles in actor, a- active viewership um, uh, to any of our work uh, on the stage or on the screen, um, they're going to have those muscles and they're going to serve them well mm. in the digital world. That's great. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, and we've been talking yet again what? for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I do have to go. Surpri- I know. Surprise. <laughs> I looked at my watch. I was like, wow. Okay. Um, so you talked about, um, where do I want to go? Let's just talk about our, uh, the field of teaching artistry for a moment, and then okay. and then we'll get to a wrap up spot. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, from your perspective, w- there are a lot of uh, just about making a living, right? Uh, uh, there's a lot of conversation. Um, I'm involved in a lot of conversations around um, teaching artists making a livable wage. Um, and, and what that means and where are the responsibilities that um, a, an organization that uh, employs part-time or freelance teaching artists, what their responsibilities are around that. Um, and then there's healthcare. You talked about that before. Other things. So I'm just curious about what are some like um, uh, hot topics or conversations that you're having or a part of um, around being a freelancer, being an, a, a teaching artist or a filmmaking, whatever the the, uh, the medium and the term might be, mm-hmm. but uh, if, if, if we can just sort of put it under the umbrella of teaching artists, what are some um, considerations that you're having at, either in your current position or in general around helping professionalize the field for teaching artists? Hmm, I guess, uh, I'm thinking a lot about, and particularly with these uh, fellows who aren't, um, you know, who were, were using this word sort of loosely about um, freelancers and freelance artists, sure. right? But what I'm thinking a lot about is um, what, what kind of foundation... Um, professional foundation can uh, can the, this organization provide so that they have a portfolio of options for putting um, a viable life together. So what are the skills they need? What are the um, opportunities they need to be aware of? Mm. You know, um, w- what what is an impact producer, for instance, and could they be one at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, and and how it's a little bit different because I'm not employing them, so I have a mm-hmm. sort of a different responsibility. It's more of a mentorship role, 
Um, so, but I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, and, and um, so one of the structures we've put in place, and it's not quite the same, but it reminds me of you talking about at the New Vic, the TAs filling more and more roles across the organization. So that creates more opportunities for employment and hours, right? Billable hours. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, that we've piloted and now I think we'll put into a formal practice is uh, a, an offshoot of creative culture are uh, we're calling production partnerships. So for years and years and years, people would call up the Burns and say, I need a video. Can one of your filmmakers make it? Because there was a kind of misconception that we were running hot and cold with filmmakers all around here, you know, but we, you know, we, we're mostly administrators um, with a, and that we do have a tech department, but it, it's not, we weren't guns for hire for your gala video. So one of the answers to that, and yet we, the organization wanted to find an answer to that, I should say first, because most of those calls came from other nonprofits or community-based organizations, mm-hmm. and we felt a, a kinship with them and perhaps on the theater side, we were, you know, having them on panels, or there were documentaries about their work and all of that, and it just felt like a bit of a, a gap mm. in our relationship. So uh, the education department created a course called Real Change for Nonprofits to try to skill up our nonprofit and community based colleagues so that they, you know, it was kind of this teach a man to fish idea. They could Mm -hmm. start to make them themselves and technology was getting more uh, cheaper and cheaper and all of that. And, um, you know, that was, that was the, the course design I think is superb and really successful, but it doesn't always run. It doesn't always fill up. And, you know, sort of like doing PD for teachers, um, you know, they move schools or they move organizations and the, the same needs aren't there or the skills leave the organization, You're, you know, mm-hmm. so all those variables existed. Um, and so suddenly, last year with our first group of fellows, we had some filmmakers around and um, thinking about what tools did they need in their tool belt uh, we thought, hmm, maybe they can fill a need. There's a mutual need. Mm. They can um, get experience in um, client-based content, which is the bread and butter of a lot of independent filmmakers. You know, they go on to uh, shoot commercials when they're not making their passion projects. Um, and also some of them need to make um content that's more in that fundraising mode to raise the money for their projects. So there's a, you know, a a very direct connection Mm. back. And also it's a gig, it's money. So last year we launched four partnerships, uh, one with Phelps Hospital, which is near here, one with Caramore Center for the Arts, which is ongoing. Um, I'm not sure if that's Caramore's whole name, but Caramore. Uh, one with the Newberger Museum at Purchase College, <coughs> SUNY Purchase, and one with, I'm forgetting one, oh, T-Town, which is a nature uh, preserve near here that's very close to the Burns. And T-Town actually was the first one. And so we matched, Sean, who I mentioned earlier, matched filmmakers with the different projects. And the idea was we would come up with 
a project budget depending on the size and scope of the individual organization's um, needs. And um, we, the Burns, would provide insurance, production insurance, uh, equipment, and facilities for editing and post, <coughs> excuse me, and mentorship and oversight of the project. Mm -hmm. And so for all of that would take a percentage of the production budget. The rest would go to the filmmaker, <coughs> and the filmmaker could hire their crew, pay themselves, et cetera, and gain that experience. It's been a really, really interesting model. And um, now they have in their literal portfolio some of that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And in their virtual portfolio, they have a whole new skill set. Yeah. And so I think that's the kind of obligation I'm feeling that particularly to this position mm -hmm. is what are those experiences that are going to help these particular freelancers build a life um, in this world. And mm. it may not be for all of them. Yeah. No, and I, I yeah, I think that the, where we've been thinking is not only in terms of compensation and growing growth in, in um, possible work opportunities, but in leadership uh, positions within right. the organization right. um, as well. And this whole concept of, you know, developing content uh, right. And uh, now there, there's lots of different ways that they can be developing content uh, as well. So, you know, all of those, uh, those are parts of the, I, I do think that we feel a sense of responsibility um, and, and it's not a full-time job, nor do I think anybody wants, wants it, it to, to be. be. Right. Um, but that if we can, the, some of the conversation, and I'm just more talking of it right now Thank about, you, about uh, salaries and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but the, the there's a there's a a survey that came out t this year though i think it was take it was taken or Can the data yeah. was collected last year and the results were um, put out this year around um how, you know what are some of the averages of of yearly salaries mm -hmm. and how much of that or percentage of that is from teaching versus other work um, and comparing that average of, of the res of responders to um, the average, uh, the national, or, yeah, the national average, which is about 40, 40s, or what a livable wage is in New York City, excuse me, um, is something like 46, give or take 46,000. This is from a couple years ago. And then um, there was a different salary of more like 83. Mm -hmm. um, that was t from a, a, a wider um, uh, sector of of uh, entertainment, arts and entertainment. Okay. Right. So, um, using either of those, <laughs> thinking about you know, as an organization, if we can, if we could sort of think, uh, let's say we are one of four arts organizations that an organ that a teaching artist could potentially be working for, could we aim? And not, you know, not uh, on an average, could we aim for being a fourth of that person's salary mm -hmm. across a, a given calendar or fiscal year? If that is possible to think like that, that help, I think that helps some or, or arts organizations who are employing teaching artists on a regular basis think about what those payment structures are 
um, et cetera, that get you there there, or potentially could get you there, at least working towards something. Mm -hmm. Because I'm aware that as an organization, we do, um, we're probably on the upper tier of of, um, pay rates, but you know, we want to be able to continue to stay there, mm-hmm. um, and, and move with the times and the cost of living. And we know that there are a lot of other factors, um, uh, politically <laughs> that are happening that we want to make sure that we're, um, being sensitive to. Um, so I love the idea of, of really thinking about skill sets because that does actually give other kind of work opportunities, whether they're working for here or, or beyond. Right, right. Um, so that's a, that's a strong step. And I feel like we had a lot of those kinds of conversations in terms of skill sets when you were mm-hmm. a director. And um, we also did the raise we, right. we, during your tenure. Um, and it was, Seth, it was Seth Bloom mm-hmm. who asked that question mm-hmm. of what what, mm-hmm. what does my experience get me exactly. and how is it recognized mm-hmm. and so that's been a that, like and i i think that's the other thing about um being you know in terms of management is listening you were yeah. talking about being an active listener uh we find it's important to be listening to our teaching artists who can ask those big hard questions that you know might be terrifying for them to ask but to be able to create a a community or an environment where it's okay to ask that question even there may not be an answer but it's okay to put it out there because at the very least we're gonna think about it at the very least if not be able to figure out something to do about it if there is an action that could come out so you know i i think that that's wonderful and I, i I do think sometimes those conversations around definitely around compensation, but benefits in general can be fraught, um, yeah. depending on who's in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they're not easy to have any mm-hmm. anywhere. And I, but I think you know one other thing that that you guys have done uh, that we're starting to do, and but it's impacting right now more our full time faculty, so it's not mm-hmm. quite parallel. Is um, all the research work. And in terms of, of offering mm. teaching mm-hmm. artists an opportunity to have more skills, to have more, as Sean Weiner always says, tools in their tool belt, yeah. I mean, they will, that will benefit you, and it will benefit them, and it could benefit another organization at some point. But that is, um, you know, it's just another opportunity, and, a, and, a, and it's, a, it's, it's another opportunity literally for different kinds of income stream but it's also um, a recognition of uh, experience, of having something to offer the organization beyond your original thing you were hired to do, mm-hmm. of growth, of um, uh, uh, yeah, of professional development, mm-hmm. personal growth and professional, professional development, development. Yeah. and that is. That's huge. You know, it's not going to pay the rent month to month, mm-hmm. but it all adds up to something that that could, should the individual choose, you know, to. And um, and it and it's it's really really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I want to continue to have conversations around that. I mean that. And something that you said earlier about being able to have conversations with people who have differing opinions, um, that is important to, to be in the room mm-hmm. with people who are, you know, have different viewpoints on, on what's possible and what's not possible. Um, 
So uh, to, 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 to wind down. <laughs> yes. One, I, you know, I, I always love talking to you. I've said it before and I will continue to say it. Me too. Uh, we can be in a room for, I, I think we could honestly have like 12 hours of <laughs> conversation and not be done. <laughs> so true. let's keep talking. Our work is never done. It no, is Courtney. so true. That's so the true. evolution. <laughs> That's it just I'm evolves. Gathering. It just evolves. Yeah. Um, I want you to feel comfortable with what I'm about to ask you. So, okay. you know, say what you say, say what you feel okay. um, it, 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 that you're willing to share. But you talk about your own um, experience growing up in, in, in D.C. And, and having access to the arts. And, you know, I picked you up with your adorable twins yes. um, who are precocious and delightful. <laughs> um, how are how are you seeing arts? um engagement within their lives and what are you hoping for for them as they grow up um in relation to the arts but in I guess in general in general I think my hope for them is similar to um my long and rambling roundabout answer to why theater for young audiences that that connecting circle I was describing um I want them to to be um, empathetic um, and and respectful, to have a diversity of experiences, to be and a, a diversity of people in their lives, and um, uh, and with that, the ability to be active listeners and constructive contributors, um, and the way I know how to create the possibility of that for them is through the arts. Uh, I think a lot about, yes, I got a lot of that myself through an arts-rich childhood. I also got some of that from going to church and being part of that community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't necessarily have religious, traditionally religious or spiritual um, outcomes from that. Mm. Um, but, but that world um, gave me a great sense of belonging and it ga- I was lucky to be part of a church and a tradition that had a wide world a broad world view Mm. and so it gave me a lot of windows it gave me a lot of empathy it gave me a kind of um humanism or humanistic um glimpse at the world and that combined with the arts and culture experiences i think was very pivotal for me and so i think a lot about and not in a judgmental way what what replaces that kind of community engagement now? And, um, and, and the thing, I forgot the most important part about those experiences was, excuse me again, at my particular church and uh, had a, for a time a youth minister who was very good about that being a space to ask the big questions, mm. right? And... Now, for me, I think 
I need the arts not to just be all the things they were for me um, and that I've just described, but for my kids, I need them to also be the place, the forum for the big questions, the stimulus, the house, and the community that gives time and space for those questions. And I don't know exactly how I'm gonna make them be that, <laughs> um, but it's something, uh, you know, we talk about, Cora Khan often tells the story the, the, about the new Vic that she knew it was working when parents let their kids go to the bathroom by themselves. So although there's not a regular every Sunday kind of community, it's a different version of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Burns is that in this community for a lot of people, whether it's in the theater, in the lab, in, in classrooms, or both. Um, I can see my kids are, are taking classes here now once a week, a class called Storyville, where they're sharing and making stories. Um, through various uh, media formats. And so that, that's giving them some of that uh, and a place to belong. Mm. Um, and so I wonder, I think more and more, it's important for arts and cultural organizations to be that place for people to belong. Because, you know, and it can be instead of your religious community or in addition to. It's not an either or, but um, I do feel that in parenting in general, those more traditional or perhaps structures of, of a different time and place for many of us, um, the absence of those requires the existence of something else. That's what I'm looking for for them, and that's what I hope to be able to, to give them or at least introduce them to. Um, because like you said to me once, you know, why did you do it this way, something? You know, it's just because that's what I know how to do. Um, I think other people find that on the soccer field, that sense of community. Mm -hmm and the understanding of humanity and human dynamics and uh, you know being a generous winner and a generous loser all that stuff those value very values driven experiences mm -hmm. and personal dynamics um you know for better or worse that's not it's <laughs> not my thing it might be my kids thing yeah. um and so you know that's that uh that searching for the things that are going to give them those experiences is 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 where I'm at, and I know best how to do that through the arts and culture. Last question. Okay. What brings you joy? Oh gosh. Um, uh, that that moment of engagement with a story or a piece of art or a something that is both personal and shared. That's awesome. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, it's right. Like so, Target is so you to go right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and whether it's like a drawing of my kids mm-hmm. or a painting at MoMA mm-hmm. or uh, whatever, it's that that thing that I can experience but share with someone else. Well, I have really enjoyed sharing <laughs> all this time with you, not just in these conversations, but over the years. Um, these kinds of, I, I don't have a lot of people, uh, oh gosh. Um, I used to have like real philosophical conversations with my dad and they would go all over the place. And I remember you and I having conversations that would be very similar parallel Mm. to those kinds of conversations. Often it was about the work. Um, but it was, uh, it also, had this more global feel to it. And so, you know, we don't get to spend as much time as we did when we were working together, but, um, these conversations, this conversation has been, um, echoing a lot of the past for me. And I really appreciate you taking so much time. My pleasure. It has for me too. And it's, it's so lovely to have the luxury of this kind of guided reflection and exchange. So I thank you for that. Well, I thank you. (laughs) And thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Make sure Thank you for listening to Episode 10, Act 4 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Edie Demas, The Sphere of Cultural Responsibility. Join us next time for Teaching Artistry Live at the International Teaching Artist Conference 2018. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. And now on Instagram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Ooh.